Welcome to the revolution in the airwaves. It's The Cure with Scotty and Sully. Where we don't just talk about the medical industry, we transform it. This is The Cure with Scotty and Sully. Where we don't just cover excellence, we create it. Hey, welcome to The Cure with Scotty and Sully. We've got a great program for you today. Um, I'm, I'm honored because I've got an old friend of mine who I met on a golf course um, many years ago at a Veterans Day golf tournament. And Scotty, this is funny. So, so every Veterans Day, we go to a golf course um, called uh, the National, and it's a Tom Watson golf course. Now, the nice thing about living in Kansas City is you're right in the heart of so many of the military's assets. Right? You've got you've got Whiteman Air Force Base, you've got Fort Leavenworth, and and, and fill any other. You got um, you got uh, the Big Red One. Out, out, um, out there, right? Which, what town are they? Fort, in? Fort Riley and Man. Fort Riley, you got Fort Riley. What else? What am I missing in, in our area? Oh, uh, well, you know, out near Wichita, there's an air, there's an air reserve base. Uh, the Marines have a, a a large recruiting effort in Kansas City. Um, you hit, yeah. A, uh, well, yeah. So, so every year, Kev was was part of, and I don't know what your involvement was, was but you were always the MC. So he was the MC of this this event, and um, it was awesome because you, you know you have special forces guys, Delta forces. You had B two pilots, and it was so for a regular guy like me, they'd pair you up with somebody in the military, right? And you'd never know who the hell you're going to get. And of course, after you'd sit down, you'd grab your beer and your ham sandwich, and of course, here comes Benson, right? And 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 uh, before I go into the formal intro, uh, you, you, what, what was your was cavalry? I was in the cavalry, yeah. All right. And you had this big boot, right? Tell them about what you yeah. did with the boot. Well, we had a punch bowl ceremony where and, you know, the owner of the National at the time asked me to do a uh, uh, you know, punch bowl ceremony, you know, pour in different liquors representing different services, you know, and, and that's what I emceed. And so inside my boot, at the, the, the final ingredient of the punch was I would I would tip it over and I would shake some dust from Iraq uh, in the boot <laughs> and, uh, and stir it up and you know just add that little tang to <laughs> to the punch. It was it was fun. It really was. Oh my God, you you were a riot, you know. And then you and I got paired up with 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 uh, with Jim and and just had a great time. And we started chatting in the golf cart over a, a couple beers just about leadership. And of course, uh, you know, in, in my world, it's it's working with companies and their sales teams and their sales leadership. And what I found is a lot of folks in my world were never taught how to coach and lead. They might have been successful in selling and then they become leaders. And, yeah, and I was 100%. curious. Yeah, right, Scotty, and, and, and please jump in. But um, where I was curious, Scotty, with, with, with the, the military and speaking with Kev was people have to go from subordinates followers then they get dropped into leadership roles and so the military knows how to do that fairly well right how do you get people's minds to think differently and now be and lead and critical thinking which is what you're huge on so so uh, maybe tell us a little bit about what you did at Fort Leavenworth because you you were you were teaching planning and you were part of a, like a master's program in leadership for for these guys who were going to lead our country yeah, that's that was uh, my final duty assignment uh, while I was on active duty. 
And uh, it was a huge privilege. I was the director of the School of Advanced Military Studies. Uh, and you know, to become a student there, you have to do what in the military is an unnatural act, which is volunteer. And I was <laughs> uh, told from day one, eh, dude, never volunteer for anything. Uh, <laughs> but you have to volunteer. You had to take a test, a written test. Then you had to have a face-to-face interview. And I tried to do as many of those as I could to get a, a personal feel for the the officers who were going to be students. Uh, and then there was a selection board that met, and we voted on these files. And so out of you know, 200, 250 or so, we would pick, well, when I was director, we'd pick about uh, 65. Uh, we had six seminars. We tried to keep the seminars around 12 to 14. So we really picked some really superb people. Uh, so what do we teach? Uh, well, you know, it's a school for war planning, go figure. And we were at, well and truly at war when I was the director. So theory, the theory of warfare. We had practical exercises that were focused on larger formations. So how do you plan for a larger formation? The, the baseline common experience that soldiers and sailors, airmen, and Marines have is uh, a leadership role at a, at a lower level. When we were asking these folks to step up so that if your last significant experience was as a company commander, you know, anywhere from 100 to 250 soldiers, or the equivalent position in the Navy and the Air Force, Marines are about the same as us as a company. Now it's Okay, now what if you're planning an operation for an organization that has a hundred of these companies? What are the considerations? And then, you know, the other side of that is it's not you making the decision. You're going to be a planner. You're going to be a staff officer. You have to present your work to a major general or a lieutenant general, two-star or three-star, depending upon what level you end up at. So how do you communicate? How do you learn how your general, you know, best receives information? Is he or she, you know, a visual learner? And so send lots of readaheads. Is is he uh, a, a person who learns by interacting? So, you know, minimal readaheads get the briefing and have engage in a conversation. How do you do that? I mean, it was it was a <laughs> it was a wonderful four years. I got to tell you, I mean, just Kevin. When you yeah. were when you were picking those sixty five men and women, what were some common traits with them that you you guys would look for? You said you voted on them. Yeah, uh, how at ease they were speaking to me, and I was a colonel. Uh, so and the major comes in. You know, do, did someone fidget in the chair and um and awe ah and stutter uh, and stammer or? Were you know, he or she able just to sit down and engage me, look me in the eye? I mean, that's the first thing I looked for. Uh, I, I tell you, the, the first question that I asked that really threw people was, hey, tell me a book that you're reading that's not in the staff college uh, curriculum. And folks would kind of give a double take. And, and I, I just told this story a couple of days ago. Uh, one guy kind of stroked his chin and said, well, sir, uh, 
I'm reading Harry Potter with my kids. And I, and I you know, in my mind, I thought, he's, you're hired. I'm hiring you. <laughs> so those are the kind of things. Uh, it basically was that, amazingly, it was that initial first impression. Yeah. Did you carry yourself well? Were you confident in yourself, but not, you know, an arrogant so-and-so? It's interesting you say that. Back uh, many moons ago at a different career for me, I, we went through an interview process, training process to teach us how to properly interview and same exact thing or, it's, you know, how it's a couple of things. One, do you like the person? Because if you don't, if you don't like the person, you're probably not going to work, work well with them no matter what their qualifications are. So that should be number one. Do you like this person that you're interviewing? And I always would ask a question similar to you that was just kind of to figure out the culture of the individual mm -hmm. in front of me. I asked them to tell me their top four favorite movies. It was my last question of the interview. Uh, <laughs> and it would always catch people off guard, like <laughs> most random question. But it tells you a whole lot about a person when they rattle off what are their top four favorite movies without asking them really anything that you're not allowed to ask them. Uh, hey, Sc anyways. Scotty. Scotty, yeah. what are your favorite four movies? <laughs> well, they've changed so much over the years, but you know, from as a kid back around this time, I would have said silly stuff like Fletch, uh, Stripes was one of my favorite. <laughs> I don't need to know that. Next two, yeah. <laughs> Caddyshack. <laughs> so, uh, so what? What I've just learned is uh, Scotty is very shallow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, Kevin, you'll appreciate this. I, I grew up in the house of a 20-year lifer in the Marine Corps, so oh, it kind of right. gives you, yeah, it gives you a little insight to how, how deep my my feelings go. <laughs> uh, I, I I went I went to school with the Marines, so I was born Camp Lejeune in uh, North Carolina, and then we moved to Joplin, Missouri, where my dad was a recruiter. Oh, wow! Actually. For just a couple of years, and then back to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up. He was at NAS Jacks, and then up to Cherry oh. Point. So he was in the Air Wing Division of the Marine Corps, working on Harrier jets. Oh, cool! Uh, yeah, oh. he uh, he retired at E nine. Uh, Whoa, Sergeant Major! Wow. Yeah. So back in eighty eight ish, when it was still good to retire. <laughs> from the, it's always good to retire <laughs> the services. <laughs> Um, yeah. All right, all right I, want to, I want to switch gears a little bit, Kev, because uh, one thing I noticed when you and I became friends long ago, if if not, not only me, but I think probably a lot of people you've led over the years um, would describe your leadership so style as um, closer to a Tony Dungy than a Bobby Knight, right? <laughs> well, I'm flattered. Oh, it, it really, and and so I'm always intrigued how both styles, be it sports, and of course you're going to teach us a little bit more on military, um, can be successful. How is it possible that, and you and I talk a, a lot about it in in the book you and I yeah. wrote together called Precise Leadership, was the importance of listening and and understanding, and you even talk about body language as it relates to interviewing, but. You know, when you're leading people, what's their body telling you? What are their eyes telling you? And not all leaders have that emotional intelligence to do it. They're a bit more directive, yet some can still be successful, dare I say, being assholes. How can that be possible? <laughs> well, well, I would offer 
it, the the first test really is do your subordinates see that you are competent you know if you are skilled in the profession and especially in the profession of arms uh, then it, you, there's there's tolerance uh, to a degree you know, there are still toxic leaders and no, I don't give a damn how competent you are. You're a jerk and people <laughs> and people won't follow you. Right. Uh, or you take advantage of the position. But, you know, a, a, a Bobby Knight style leader can be remarkably successful because people will follow him if he's competent and he's demonstrated his competence. And if he or she does, you know, it's the, the classic that... You don't tell someone to do something that you're not capable of doing yourself. Uh, now, it, it's, the leader doesn't necessarily have to do it, but it has to have proven competence at that level. So, you know, coming right down to it, I'm going to trust this screamer, this Bobby Knight, because he's not going to be a, put me in a position where I'm just going to get killed. Uh, even if he's going to put me in a position of danger, he's going to mitigate that danger to the extent possible, recognizing that, you know, there's there's still, like Bill Malden put it, you know, running into the law of averages. Um, you know, there's so many bullets going one way and so many bullets going another. Uh, and sometimes even the most competent catch one. No. But that's, you know, that's how someone like that can be successful to a point uh, you know, there, there is a point where uh, screamers will turn, no matter how competent, they'll just turn people off. You know, yeah. like, I, I've seen that more in staffs uh, than in in command positions in tactical units. You know, if, if you know that no matter what you produce, the boss is going to just scream. Uh, and one of those kind of people who doesn't know what he or she likes until he or she sees it. Uh, you know, it just, how many times do I have to go in and get my butt kicked? Right. Uh, before I happen on what right looks like uh, for that individual. Right. Uh, you know, so there's, there is, and the wise leader, the guy or gal who understands who he or she is, you know, knows what his or her frame is, uh, will recognize at some point the successful ones that, you know, I really am a, a jerk. Uh, so how do I mitigate my jerkness? Mm -hmm. You know, it's still a part of my essential being, but you know, I can't, I'm at such a level where I can't just be directive. I have to get input from other people. Uh, so I'll torture him a little bit, but I'll know when to stop the torture because they're on to something. Talk about that a little bit, Kevin, about team dynamic and how that, you know, evolved within the military and how important it is. Because in the, in the healthcare environment today, selling, uh, especially at the level of the readership that I have, they have to work in teams today. They didn't in the past. It was, you know, really? one, wow. one and gun. And now it's more 
you know, you don't see a rep just individually go into an account and call on a physician office. They take their lab specialists in there, their equipment specialists in there, their infection control specialists. Mm. So it is it is so much more a team environment today than maybe even five years, six years ago. Well, I, I would say that building a team will always be an art more than a science. Uh, but the way I presented to my students was... And again, it comes back to, you know, I did this. You know, recognize your frame. What influences the way you think and your depth of understanding? Because while your frame gives you, it enhances your ability. Uh, you know things in depth, but the nature of a frame also prevents you from seeing things that others who have a different frame than you might be able to see. And therefore, and therefore, the, the total product of the team brings in more nuance. And there's a degree of, and I don't want to sound touchy-feely because I really, I never was that way. But you've got to have a degree of humility or at least recognize the limits of your own intelligence and be able to accept the input and intelligence and wisdom of the other members of the team. So you play to their strengths because it isn't you that's important. It's the team's presentation that's important. And the ultimate success is making the sale, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And something I want to bring up, uh, it's it's that question of how how does the leader perceive themselves? And I think oh, yeah. when, when those are blow, those folks are blowing it, um, first of all, it's amazing how many who lack emotional intelligence find themselves in leadership roles. And I wonder what they did well to get, they had to do something well, be it kiss some ass or whatever. Oh, of course. They did something really well. <laughs> well right? Of course they did. It, it had to be, it's the only way. Um, well, you know, in the army which, that I'm most familiar with, obviously, uh, it's you are rated individually yep. throughout your entire career in the in the evaluation system that we have. And so it's very easy to recognize superior individual performers because the individual produces. And and when you've got, you know, all these racehorses, these thoroughbreds, who are terrific individuals? You're going to recognize. You're going to recognize folks like that. You're going to promote folks like that because they do really good things. the The tipping point is when they're placed in a command position or a leadership position. No longer can that one individual produce everything. But we. Those are the people that we promote, and it's up to that individual to have, like you said, Brian, I'd never heard the emotional intelligence in a whole area of study before, and, and until recently, actually. Never heard it on active duty. Yeah. But who have that internal awareness that, you know, I have to go, like, I, I wrote an article about I'm making the transition at some point from being a doer to being a guider. And I have to be able to 
give guidance that empowers subordinates and team members to do their best. And then it's up to me to be, you know, to stand in between you know, the senior officer and the staffers so that, and again, this sounds so simple, but, you know, if everything goes really well, then it's my job to say, hey, it's your team, General. Here are the great folks who did this for you. But if, if you know, somebody uses the wrong font and that pisses the general off, then it's my job to stand in front and go, okay, boss, I got that one. You know, I forgot that you like Ariel and not Times New Rome. You know, I, I, that's mine. I got it. Just, we'll, we'll deal with it. Uh, you know, you understand what, what I'm trying to go with? Well, it's Scotty. And it's, the, world, the world you and I have lived in, um, the medical sales world, uh, so many get promoted. They like that thoroughbred, right? I mean, the thoroughbreds in healthcare 100%. sales yeah. become the leaders of teams. And most are never taught the things that we're discussing. Humility, looking at yourself, the, um, uh, uh, thinking how do other people's perceive you, people perceive you? How do you coach? How frequently do you coach? They're not taught that. And so it's frustrating. And, and, and Kev, you, you jump in here. It, it's frustrating because um, those thoroughbreds get in front of a group of folks who might even be A minus players, B plus players, maybe even B players, and they say, My God, they're not as good as me. Why aren't they doing it this way? This is ridiculous. I know what works, and I'm telling them what works, and they won't do what works. This is ridiculous. It, and that cycle right, leads to frustrated teams. Um, or or maybe followers of that leader who give them lip service, but behind their back with their boys, they're saying that guy's an, you know, an idiot, right? And and so I think it, it would have, and it, I mean, just in learning from you, um, it, the, the conversations are so important because I would say most companies can be fixed if we can fix the level of leadership that's out in the field. Right. So in your world, Kevin, it might be the lieutenants. Right? How do we make them amazing leaders? Right? Yeah. Um, because they're right there. Right. They're, 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 they can affect so, so many people and they have to be taught. At least the military does a good job. There are companies, Scotty, that you and I work with who've never been taught how to coach and to lead. Or, or am I wrong? No, I think it's probably one of the major issues in the industry today is leadership. I think a lot of companies teach sales and do really good at it. And I think there's a, a, a miss when it comes to leadership specifically. To your well, no, I got to I got to tell you my my impression and, and Sully, when when you first approached me to talk about that book, Precise Leadership, I remember telling my friends that, you know, the guys who are active duty or just retired like I was, it's like, my God, you know, folks can go to Harvard to get an MBA, but what you and I were talking about was stuff I learned as a lieutenant in the basic course, you know, a brand new commission. It's like, holy crap. Yeah. yeah. yeah because it, I, I don't mean to be pejorative. It really wasn't. Yeah. But it, like when we were talking, you know, you were looking at me like I was the burning bush. And, <laughs> and it was, and it was, it was so <laughs> it was like leadership, leadership 101. It was, which is yeah. what what I started to get at the at at West Point 
and then further throughout every army school that I went to. Now, the wonderful thing that, that the army does, which you know, we recognize that lieutenants are are young, they're eager, they want to they want to please, and so every platoon leader, uh, or in the Marine Corps, platoon commander, as a senior non commissioned officer, a senior sergeant, to just go, you know, okay, LT lieutenant, um, hold on a second. Yeah, you know we're not fighting, you know, the Battle of Austerlitz here. We're we're trying to, you know, attack Hill three thirty one. So let's kind of calm down, uh, and and we get we're paired with wise or at least experienced non commissioned officers. Even in even in my case, every position I had, no, no, I had a senior NCO. That was always the, and I always empowered him. It, it, I mean, I didn't learn that when I was a lieutenant. That was beaten into us in the basic course. You know, don't be a dumbass. Listen to your platoon sergeant, because he'll give you signals if something's going wrong. Uh, but later on, it was I always empowered my senior NCO to to throw the bullshit flag. You know, I was like, hold on there, uh, Colonel. Oh, there, Mustang. Let's just, where were you going with that one? Oh, thank you, Sergeant Major. Uh, My first battalion Sergeant Major ended up being the Sergeant Major of the Army. Uh, You know, that he was that good. And in that role of being an advisor to senior officers, tremendous. The second guy was equally good. It's just that he wanted to stay at the battalion level because that's where he was most comfortable and most effective. So it, it just, that's an advantage I think that we have. But leadership itself is reinforced and reinforced and reinforced you know, in, in our units, in our schools. Because yeah. yeah, the technical side, sure, we teach that too. Yeah. You know, how to, how to put together... <clears throat> A march table for a unit. You know, so how long does it take a unit of a hundred vehicles to, you know, go forty kilometers from point A to point B, and where do you have to have refill points? You know, all that stuff that we call the science of war. But the more senior we get, the more the focus is on the art, the the art of leadership, the art of understanding how operations fit into a, into a whole. Yeah, just hey, I, I want you to tell the folks the story of the, the time in the middle of the night. Your phone rang, and I believe you were called down to to maybe Pensacola to sit in a dark, smoky room with some oh. generals. And um, can, can you share that? Because the leadership lesson about the leader who came in and had to coach <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, Shit, Scotty might enjoy that one too. Yeah, this was. Uh... I was a lieutenant colonel. I was up on the plans staff of Third Army, uh, Third U.S. Army, which is the commanding headquarters for Army units associated with United States Central Command. And so this was years ago. After I don't know if you remember the incident where terrorists blew up uh, a barracks full of Air Force uh, airmen, Cobar uh, Towers, and it was almost like like. Sully said it was, you know, get that hey you call early in the morning, you know, pack up your kit. You, you you're on this flight, 
and uh, you're going to to it was Tampa uh, to the headquarters to Central Command. Yeah, uh, and you know, you know, pack for a few days because we don't know how long you're going to be down there. Like, okay, geez, I've never done this before in my life. You know, kiss the wife, kiss my daughter, get on the airplane, fly down, and we were thrown into a a secure facility so no one can bring a cell phone in no one can bring and a personal laptop you know because all the the computer systems are are guarded you know cyber proof and all that kind of stuff not linked to an outside system you know all that stuff i mean it was really serious uh, and it was okay we're gonna we're gonna build a plan and it's we're gonna invade this country when the president says we're going we're going and we have to have a a really sound plan put together. Okay, God, I guess this is really serious. And, you know, we're hammering and working away and coming to, you know, fast, you know quickly to the realization that, you know, we're going to run out of stuff about halfway to the capital of this particular country. And, uh, well, you know, we, we need to, we need to make sure that the, the flag of general officers know what the hell we're coming up against. And where's the risk? Um, so then the word comes, okay, you know, the deputy commander wants to come talk to us. And he was this, he was a, a Marine general, a big guy, big chest, big arms. Uh, and his, his aide de camp was the same way. It was like an NFL linebacker size guy. And they had just come from, from bench pressing a million pounds or something. He was all buff and walking in and slapping back. So, hey, how you guys doing? Uh, you're doing great. Keep it up. Keep it up. And and he gave us this rah-rah talk. Like, we're going to get in. We're going to do this quick. We're going to get there. We're going to kick their ass. Yeah, blah, blah. We're going to wrap it, wrap it, wrap it. The, the key word then was rapid, decisive operations. We're rapid, decisive operation. Blah, kick their ass. Okay. And I just thought, okay, it's one of those times when do you want to be right or promoted? And I figured, <laughs> no, I, I gotta, I gotta tell the truth. I, I raised my hand. He goes, I said, sir, can I, can I ask you a question? Sure, sure, sir, Lieutenant Colonel Benson, Third Army. Yeah, sir. It's it's twelve hundred kilometers from the point of entry to the capital. Could the could the general define for us what he means by rapid? Because we're going to run out of fuel trucks 600 kilometers in. And, and his face cut kind of red. Like, he figured he was just going to come in, rah-rah, and walk out. And here's this army jerk who's bringing up reality. And, <laughs> and, and you know when you ask that kind of question, because the folks who were sitting next to me started to scoot away. Uh, like, we don't want to get any honest. And... And the general kind of comes up, he swaggers up, and he goes, Benson, and he's poking me in the chest. Benson, that's what I effing to pay you to figure out. Then walks up. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you, General. It's your problem. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, don't don't confuse me with the facts. So oh, what's hey. what, so what's the lesson in that? That sometimes <laughs> you will confront a point where you have to raise unwelcome information, and if nobody else is going to do it, you have to have the moral courage to do it. Because in my case, we were talking about lots of GIs and Marines and airmen and sailors might have to go, you know, dare I use that 
old cockamamie adage of they were going into harm's way. You know, and and I wasn't. I wasn't going to be in the first landing craft when the, when the ramp went down. I was going to be somewhere sitting in front of a computer continuing planning. And uh, like, no, no. General, I got it fast, but no, this is something you got to know and I'm going to tell you. So if he was a buddy of yours and you had to sit down with a beer with him, where would you t- where, what would you say where he screwed up walking into that room? Well, if I'd had that opportunity, because and and he was a Reed, so I know he liked to drink beer. Uh, <laughs> it could have been highly possible. Uh, was uh, I just said, boss? Next time you come into a room full of planners who've been, you know, wearing the same clothes for a couple of days and locked inside this airless, you know, or at least not very well ventilated planning room, and you want to give us a rah rah. The rah-rah we need is you need to communicate to us that you understand that what we're facing is pretty daunting. You know, show us that you understand that and then listen to what we want. When you ask us, anybody got any questions, listen to what we were saying to you. Because if nobody asks any questions, then you better ask us a question because mm-hmm. boss you're a big guy physically, you're a lieutenant general, and you know there's a lot of folks who are intimidated by rank. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you say, clearly you aren't, Benson. They, you know, well, yeah, you're right. Uh, but you're gonna, someone's going to face that situation, and you have to really have to dig in and, okay, where's my moral courage? And, and that's what it comes down to in some instances. Oh, oh. Where'd you find that picture? Look at that stud. <laughs> That's awesome. Huh? That's a great shot. Tell us about yeah. that picture. That well, we after we got to Baghdad in 03, uh, and you know, by and large, you know, no plan can look with certainty beyond initial contact with the enemy made body. And that was true in our case too, but we still got to Baghdad relatively quickly. And when I finally got to go up to the city after the the great third infantry division and first marine division that brought uh, a level of somewhat level of order at that time um i got to do my well i call it you know, somewhat self pejoratively my combat tourist uh, <laughs> run friend, a friend of mine put together cuz you know i that arch of sabers that you know supposedly was you know, Saddam is mighty forearms holding, you know, that's how they modeled that. Uh, I'd seen satellite photos of that, but I'd never been there. You know, that was the guy I was with, Marty uh, Marty Stanton, who, who still works down at Central Command. He's a retired guy, too. But Marty put together the patrol, and we uh, we went to this place. We, went, we drove around Baghdad, went to the, the square where the Iraqis pulled down Saddam's statue. And it was, yeah, okay, boy, we're, we're there. We finally got to see. And, and you know, the pistol that I was carrying, because uh, it's, as you might have noticed, it's a pistol holster for a right-handed guy, and I'm lefty. That's why it's <laughs> on that way. Uh, that was my, my grandfather's Colt forty five revolver that he carried in World War One. Oh, that's uh, cool. And I got, I got permission to, to bring that as my sidearm. Um, 
to go to wow. war with again. So, really cool. Yeah. Kevin, what, what, uh, not to shift gears on you here from that, what, when we're talking about leadership a little bit, what, what are two or three books that you recommend? You know, Sully just mentioned that so many, so, so much of our industry lacks some leadership training, but what are some just kind of two or three, especially as we start this new year? Yeah. Folks can well, kind of start out, you know, you know. I know that the, the cartoonist himself has fallen out of favor, but you know the Dilbert book that was called "Out at Five, uh, you know, building an Out at Five organization. Do you know what Dilbert's uh, what the author's name is? Scott Adams, you know, isn't it? Yeah, Scott yeah. Adams. <laughs> I know he's fallen, he's fallen out of favor. Not you, but that, that guy. Uh, but that book was really good. I mean, it was practical out at five. You know, what's the biggest gift that an employer can give back to his employees? Right. It's their time. Yeah. So, you know, no, you know, calls at, uh, you know, 1645 when everyone's expecting to go home at 1700 and say, hey, I got this big project and I need it, uh, you know, by you know, 1730. Like, oh, and you're telling me now? Uh, so, be cognizant of other people's time. So, you know, that's one. Uh, you know, there's, I, I like biographies and autobiographies. Uh, there's another, I think there's two other books, and these are military, so, you know, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but Field Marshal Bill Slim wrote a, a book, you know, Victory from Defeat. It was about his commands in the China-Burma-India theater during World War II. And Bill Slim uh, was a, a Brit, but he was served primarily in the, yeah, back at the time, the British Indian Army. So he you know, wasn't in the Coldstream Guards or anything like that. He was in a Gurkha regiment where it was his formative years. Uh, but that book is all about leadership. And, you know, really, he was willing to explain where he screwed up uh, and how subordinate commanders saved the day just through pure heroic actions. Uh, and he still, you know, retained the confidence. Um, the other one is, and again, this is by an American general, I think the finest biographer, you know, autobiography that came out of World War II, uh, Lucian Truscott, L-U-C-I-A-N, Truscott, T-R-U-S-C-O-T-T, -T, Command Missions. And again, Truscott was the same kind of guy. He started out World War II as a colonel in command of a horse cavalry regiment along the U.S.-Mexico border uh, and ended up the war as a three-star general in command of a field army. Uh, and you know, his background, his experience, his ability to deal with senior officers, and then as a senior officer, deal with subordinates. Uh, those books are, are leadership lessons on every page. Tell us about your latest 
leadership book that you wrote <laughs> and what you're trying to accomplish. I'm so glad you didn't blow smoke up Sully's ass. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you very much. Since we ask, the one, the one we. we we wrote is leadership for idiots. This is the <laughs> real one. This is leadership written by an idiot. Uh, the uh, no, it's the the time I spent as the the chief planner for the field army, the 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 army headquarters that was you know in command of Fifth U.S. Corps and First Marine Expeditionary Force um, in the march up to Baghdad in the opening of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, I, I kept a, a journal uh, and I wrote a daily report uh, to my commanding general to let him know what his planters were doing. And I, I used those along with other experiences that I had. And I tried to tell the story of planning for the invasion. So planning before we invaded the planning that went on during the invasion and the planning that went on until I left Iraq for what to do after we took Baghdad. And, you know, the, my gripe was that the, the common understanding, you know, it's some, to some degree to this day, was that your army didn't plan on what to do after we got to Baghdad. Hence, we were there for 20 years, you know, lots of blood and treasure, and um, and that's just false. We, my, me and my officers and NCOs were planning, you know, put together, I think, pretty comprehensive plans for what to do. Now, that you know, that's the point where the planner can only go so far. The planner turns it over to commanders um, and you know even lieutenant generals have to get approval to do things from higher commanders but to say that the army's incompetent because we didn't plan on what to do after we got to Baghdad it's just rubbish yeah and and so that's the that's the reason why I wrote the book but but also you know the the great people that I was that I was privileged to work with, you know, the the majors, the lieutenant colonels who worked for me, who did the you know the heavy lifting of you know building, for example, building the plan on how to marry up troop units coming from Fort Riley, Kansas, to the port of Beaumont, and making sure that the ships needed to move the division were there on time. And then calculating the steaming time to get from the port of Beaumont, Texas, all the way around to Kuwait City, and then how long it takes to offload, get to a staging area in Kuwait. What is it? How long does it take to get the get the weapon systems zero again? Because stuff will break even on the ship and route, uh, and then make sure there's fuel and ammo and food and water because it was the desert water, pretty important. Uh, to the right place at the right time, uh, you know, that was incredible work. Uh, and then to deal with the reality of, you know, the Secretary of Defense at the time saying, okay, no, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. We're not going to make, have the president make one decision and then just let the, the machine take over. 
So we had to justify every single unit that we wanted. Uh, and so there's an interruption of that force flow. And when do units get there, which increases the level of difficulty. Well, and make sure the slopes at least heard the broad stroke of that story. Because I know that you know military audience will have a much more of an immediate understanding of, well, holy cow, that's what they were doing. That's just in a fair, it was you know, going on 24 years ago yeah. that this happened. And there were people who weren't in the army then who are now senior officers, you know, because that's a whole career. Yeah. You know, if someone entered. Which part of the plan, which part of the plan did they not use once we were in Baghdad? There was a. Why we stayed there for, for 20 years. And you don't have to go to a ton of detail, but I'm just curious. No, listen, just the, the, the follow on plan that we wrote was called Eclipse 2. Uh, the, and we took that name from the, the, the name of the plan for how to deal with uh, Germany after the Germans surrendered in World War II. And, and that's where the similarity ended. But you know, I was looking for some historical tie to, to Third Army, which was our headquarters. Uh, I, you know, I know my boss, uh, the Third Army commander, knew about the plan because we briefed him on it. But I don't think it went outside of Third Army, uh, and you know, so folks were were rolling their own uh, after we left. There was so there was no threat of continuity. I think that was ignored. I really do, sadly. Yeah, that's a and, shame. And then when when you get into the situation where you know our headquarters leaves, and then a, a subordinate headquarters takes over the entire country. And then uh, about a year later, another headquarters comes in to take over. You, you, you lose threads of continuity. There's a learning curve uh, every time. Wow. And, and then units transition in and transition out. And even if you were an Iraq veteran of the initial invasion, the next time you come back, you're in a whole different area of Iraq under different conditions with you know, different Iraqis that you're dealing with. Um, and it's, okay, we're starting all over again. So. Yeah. All right, what's the name of your book? When's it going to be out? Where, where can we buy it? Obviously, Amazon. Okay. Let's talk about it. What's the name? It's It's been published by Casemate Publishing. Uh, matter of fact, and Brian, you'll appreciate this. Uh, just yesterday, I got my first editorial feedback, and the editor would be pleased to have the entire thing rewritten by the, the 12th of this month. Got it yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I know you remember that from dealing with editors. Oh, yeah. But God God bless him. Uh, the the expectation, the penciled-in publishing date is April of this year. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I truly don't know. I'm assuming, with all the baggage that that word carries, that yet will be on uh, available on Amazon because isn't everything available on Amazon. Yeah. But case casemate will publish it uh, April, and the title is "Expectation of Valor." And would the business world find value in this? Well, I sure hope so, because I, I I want guys like you to buy it. <laughs> 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 I, I you know it, it's a 
you know, it, it's an unofficial history because it was just, it's the history from my perspective from where I was sitting at the time. So for, for what that's worth, and it's just another perspective on you know, the totality of what our country got into in 03. And it is, it is frankly still involved, even though we officially left in December of 11. Shortly thereafter, we went back, and as you've heard, we still have about 20, over 2,000 troops in Iraq to this day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we may not be going anywhere anytime soon. You have to write your next book on our exit from Afghanistan, too, would you, Kevin? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Well, Scott, you got any closing comments? Thank you. Kevin, I appreciate your service, my man. And uh, thank you for being on this podcast. Which oh, is very, very entertaining and, and interesting. And uh, again, I, I look forward to reading these books that you gave the audience today. Well, thanks. And happy New Year uh -huh. to you, sir. Yeah, Happy New Year to you guys. I, I'm... I really, and I'm not pumping smoke at you. I, I'm really flattered that that you know my buddy Sully, who knows what a bad golfer I really am, <laughs> uh, still you know still thinks that I can add value to you guys you guys adventure here. So oh yeah, well, listen, um, I, I, even though it's the winter months, um, jump in that that beat up old green Jeep of yours, throw your clubs in back, head on down to Lock, and we'll we'll uh, spend a nice day. All right, okay. <laughs> I appreciate All right, it, ladies and gentlemen, still, Kirk. <laughs> what? I I still have that Jeep. <laughs> um, just, why not? What? Why not? <laughs> why not? All right, Colonel Kevin Benson. Check out his book coming up shortly. Expectation or expectation of val valor. Um, Kev, I love you. Great seeing you. Um, let's start the year off right, everybody, and we'll uh, we'll see you next. In fact, we've got another interview coming up, Kev, with a, a guy named Ken. Maybe you know him. Before you head out, a guy named Ken Falky. Um, never, not sure if you ever heard of him, okay. but he's got quite a resume himself. He's uh, Navy Special Ops. And so, oh. big military day today. And you started <laughs> it all off right. All right. Hey, hope you enjoyed it. You listen to The Cure with Scotty and Sully. Thank you, Kevin. See you, Sully. All right, Kev. Thanks, buddy. I'll Thanks, call you. Guys. Really I appreciate it. We'll reach out. We'll set up a date.